Hello and welcome to Horus Heretics episode 11. I'm William. I'm Neil. And uh, this week we're going on to a new book. We've got Descent of Angels by Mitchell Scanlon. So, uh, anything you want to say before we get stuck into the story, Neil? Uh, well, yeah, um, we mentioned uh, before that the Primarch of the the main legion that we're looking at today, the Dark Angels, uh, suffers under the name Lion L. Johnson, and that that must have yeah. been that must have been a real person. Um, so I did a bit of googling, did a bit of research because it wasn't the name I'd ever heard of before. Uh, had you ever heard of Lionel Pidgeot Johnson? Nope. No. Well, he is a Victorian poet. Um, not from what I know, anyway, not one of the more famous ones. Um, but he did write a poem called "The Dark Angel," and uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, new book, and this is one that is an occasion where I've read a book that I've read before. And I think the context in which I've read this now has made me enjoy it so much more than I enjoyed it the first time. And I think the reason for that is, um, and this is quite a pleasant surprise, uh, I'd been complaining in a previous episode that I knew we were coming up to a bunch of books that were going to sort of go off the main epic narrative of the Horus Heresy. And I think when I first read this, I was like, come on, I want to see what's happening with that story. And that's not what's going on in this book but knowing that going into it i actually really enjoy this book um and i totally agree i i I loved this book i genuinely i loved it um it's it was it's so different it's such a radical change and we got a bit weighed down by the last book which was shit and i was i was on a diner and then i read this and it was a it was a bloody pleasure. I I loved it. Genuinely me, loved it. Me too. I really really enjoyed it, and it was a total, quite surprising breath of fresh air. Um, uh, totally, and, and and quite a bit of the, like it, it seemed like, at at different turns, the author really did, uh, sort of, uh, subvert a lot of what had happened before, and just tried to take things a little bit further and dig a little bit deeper yeah I, and i really enjoyed that i agree there's some points where this book has sort of done things that the other books kind of should have been doing but didn't um and also yeah. uh much as we enjoy all the stupid bits of writing in the other books um there wasn't much of that here there was none there was none at all uh, and um yeah i um I would have liked some, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, there were there were one or two really clunky lines yeah, yeah, there w- that that just read like you know this is a first pass and um, I'll just stick this line in this uh, to get like the tone of the thing, and uh, I'll I'll sort of write it up in further drafts and that didn't happen, which I assume is just happens all the time with Black Library books yeah. as they pump them. Yeah, there was a couple. Yeah, there was a couple um, like that that just seemed like editing oversights and, st- and stuff, but um, yeah. There wasn't any of the truly baroque clunkers that you sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I know, which made me sad because I look out for those. But when you're just piling through a book, 
that you're really enjoying. You really, um, I'm just like the the names of the people in in these books are all in in this book. Sorry, um, they're all angelic. They're all like uh, Zadariel and Hadariel yeah. and and stuff. And I thought that would get really taxing. And it was a, I think it's a sign of how much I enjoyed it that um, I really didn't mind those those cumbersome names yeah and it was like it was a properly good read this book like um it starts with a prologue that sorry a prelude that i i really liked and like you know one thing that was good about this book is that it was just structurally pretty straightforward (laughs) pretty straightforward which was a nice change um it was i i i'm not sure that it was straightforward it just worked. Yeah, that's 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 a better way of putting it. Because um, it it starts with, it's like, it's telling you a story. It's written from the point of view of like maybe a troubadour or a minstrel of, of Caliban society. Caliban being where the the home planet of the Dark Angels before, uh, the Emperor before Space Marines. They're just a, a society of knights. Yeah. Um, and uh, it yeah it starts with this. Did you take that as well? Like it like it's a storyteller. I I found there was a real fairy tale sort of vibe about this. Yeah. Um, and yeah, as you say, this is in terms of timeline. This is bringing us way back before any of the other books to the the Dark Angels before they became the Dark Angels. Uh, as space marines and became part of the Imperium. So this is one of the planets that's off there in the galaxy that the the Emperor is trying to bring back into the fold. But um, this is also one where there's a Primarch has been jettisoned onto uh, in the form of Lionel Johnson, who will ultimately weed the Dark Angels. And it says that it's set during a period called Old Night, which is um, when... uh, Obviously, hum- humanity had reached a, a, a technological high point and had, you know, spread to all these different planets. But old night is the period where uh, something happened and it sort of sundered all these communities away from each other. And they had been alone for five thousand years. And there's a really good, just like two or three page section about. Um, like how they were free from, there's a line, free from the influence of Terra, our society had developed in a manner more in keeping with the world in which we lived. And it was just talk about individual societies and uh, their development and how, uh, yeah, how, how they were structured and how they reflected the planet and the geography that they were on rather than something that was imposed from some, you know, central... Her. Yeah, and that's that's an important point. Is is Terra as far as the people in Caliban? Sorry, I should say yeah, Caliban is the planet we're talking about here. Is um, Terra is something they talk about, but they they actually don't know if they're they don't know if they're not the only humans in the entire universe. Like there's there's stories about Terra, and that there are other human uh, civilizations out there, or or a civilization. But they don't know if that's myth or reality. Exactly, and they they mention it like, what if Terra is just a a myth set up by our forefathers, like a um, a an origin story, just 
just that. And um, they've all heard of it, so they all know the story of it. But um, they're sort of they have enough self knowledge to know that this could be bollocks. Yeah. Where does the story start then? We we are on a planet called Caliban that's covered in forests, basically, and there are different nightly orders on this planet, and most of the story concerns um, one of those nightly orders is just called the Order, and they are a bit different than the other ones because there was seemingly before um, they came about the the there was a sort of traditional aristocratic structure to the society but the order had a kind of egalitarian approach where they said anyone could join their group if they yeah. were just good knights basically yeah they uh, it was all about um brotherhood and there was no there was no highborn there's no lowborn uh there was egalitarianism except of course they're all men yeah yeah, yeah. One thing that really, really stood out, and this is a this is probably the the only bad point in the book that I would really bring up, is that there is literally no woman. That's, that's in true. It. So far, there is literally, like, not yeah. even. In fact, I think I was going to say not even a mention. The literally the only mention that I can think of of a woman is like. Uh, um, there's a at one point in the story there's a description of some people from a town going off to try and collect some food and get yeah. killed by a by a monster and I think that's the only context in which at least as far as I can remember a woman is married. yeah there's uh, there's t- some talk of like um, wives and daughters back at the farmstead or something but not a single one appeared so yeah it's it, it's called the order um, th- this group of, of knights and they seem to be um, they're fairly young, they're a fairly new order but because of their egalitarianism I suppose they, they grow in numbers and um, they seem to be a, a sort of one amongst many at this point uh, until uh, this human, this very big human is found living wild in a forest um, by a uh, He's found by uh, this knight of the order called Luther, and he can't speak. He's got no language. He's basically a you know a forest a- animal, um, except that when they bring him back, uh, they find that within days he learns language. A little bit longer, he learns reading and writing, and then he just like everything just goes from there. And they give him the name Lionel Johnson, which means the lion of the forest. And from here on in, I'm going to call him the lion because I'm not <laughs> going to. There's no way I'm going to do that again. Um, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Um, there, was, there was quite a. There's some good stuff that I think we'll get to. I, I thought there were much better, um, much more subtle descriptions of what it might mean to be a superhuman in this book uh, later on than there have been previous books. I just think. I just think the whole. The whole book introduces so much more subtlety and nuance into everything. Yeah, I agree with that. And um, but there was one one funny thing about Lionel Johnson. So like, so yeah, they 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 regard him as as a man at this point, but they know there's something special about him, basically. Um, and there's quite, there's quite a funny bit later on where it talks about like 
that he's sort of got this intellect that he's is um is above anyone else and just sort of more talented and everything else and um they talk they talk about him making jokes that go over everyone's head <laughs> his sense of humor <laughs> then i laughed at that bit too it's like i think i've i think i copied and pasted that i think i've got that in the in my notes here i could just imagine him like they're at the dinner table and they're all like having this massive sort of you know uh you know great time with her brothers and having a big, a big laugh and having a, a drink or whatever and then while Lionel Johnson booms out a joke and I'm just like what the fuck uh, yeah that's, that's, totally I've, I've got it written down uh, this is coming from Luther describing the lion's sense of humour he says his mind is a subtle and complex instrument and his humour is shaped by the same brilliance he exhibits in everything else he does when my brother makes jokes, no one understands them. He tends to pitch them too high for our for us roughhouse types. They go over our heads, which is to, which is total bollocks. This is the this is the lion. Like he is ultra clever. He is ultra good in war. He's the best at everything, except he's not funny and he hates it. And he tells a joke and it just fucking bombs. And he goes, "Well, you just don't get it." <laughs> And everyone else goes, well, oh, we, we mustn't because he's good at everything else. And the lion just goes, okay. <laughs> and maybe that's the way in for chaos. Maybe that's a way in for chaos, that just probing at his lack of sense of humor. And they're just going, if you, uh, if you come to us, we'll make you funny, lion. <laughs> we'll give you a joke book. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's uh, that's there's our second piece of fan fiction uh plot right already. <laughs> the, the, the chaos jokes <laughs> the chaos book of jokes <laughs> uh, okay so uh, so so yeah he's obviously the gonna be the primarch um and you mentioned luther who mm-hmm. is sort of another he's the sort of second most prominent figure in the uh, order. Uh, yeah, and and we're told at this point in the text, uh, this isn't a spoiler, it's right there, by this sort of narrator, storyteller type type figure who's who's telling a story. Um, he, he tells us that Luther at some point, far into the future, will betray the lion at some point. Yeah. Um, and that... Um, Everyone betrays or everyone portrays Luther as this very evil figure, but that storyteller knows he knew Luther and uh, he's not like that at all and that he loved the lion. And he says, there's a few lines about, oh, how sad for poor, poor Luther. So he feels bad for him at the same time as acknowledging that he betrayed uh, the lion. Yeah, and actually I thought this was, I mean, this might really be something well will be something that the second half of the book i'm sure goes into much more i thought this was one element of the the story that was just a little clunky was like yeah you get introduced to that concept early on so you know that there's something there's going to be this big split between luther and the lion and um but all throughout luther pretty much all throughout the, the first half of the book luther is just a really good 
guy really um and he's mm-hmm. really sort of generous and isn't jealous and all this and then just at the end of this first half there's a bit where like one of the characters sees a flash of jealousy and i was just like that's fair enough because it'll probably be explored more in the second half but it just seemed to sort of come from nowhere apart from the fact that you'd been told that that was going to happen yeah and, it, and and the fact that um the way it was written into the narrative was just like uh, and luther couldn't hide his jealousy at this moment and showed that he was harboring some internal uh resentment towards l- the lion and you're like yeah you you, d- you don't write that you you show yeah, it yeah 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 that's true. um but i th- that isn't any different from any of the other books no. uh that happens in in there as well i think it just stood out more because it's surrounded by more subtlety and more nuance in this yes, one yes yeah totally and and that's um where i suppose that brings us neatly on to uh some of the other characters so we've got those two um there are some other sort of prominent figures in the order, such as a guy called Brother Amadis, I think. Was that his name? Um, uh, yeah, well, I, I, I go with Amadis. Amadis. Uh, that's how I was okay, saying, uh, yeah. But Amad- he's a great hero of the order. Yeah, um, and then we've got... Uh, there's, a, there's a sort of office within the order or a position called Ward Cipher, <clears throat> who um, is the guy who's charged with sort of looking after the traditions of the um order and then we have uh, a guy called master ramio who is a teacher basically an instructor because a big part of the order is inducting boys from a very young age who come and as supplicants to try to um, be accepted in to train as knights and it's some of those supplicants who are really the main characters of this book um, and uh, the main two are Zahario and Nemio yep these are two they're two cousins um, and they go through uh, the rites of passage at the same time um, and they are they obviously grew up together they're almost the same age and they have there's a really strong bond between them except that it's a strong bond but shown through ultra competitiveness and there is there is some talk of resentment growing between them as the book goes along but it's really it's really well played uh, as opposed to pretty much all the other relationships in the book that says they're friends i actually believed these two were really friends it was a relationship that i totally believed in um and i was trying to think of other friendships throughout the books that we've read yeah and i i just did looking back on them i didn't believe anything yeah like there was there was torgaden who would like flump into other people's conversations and tell a shit joke and everyone else would be like oh hey hey Torgarin but inside they were secretly going I despise you you idiot and and I was like nobody could be friends with this idiot and that's yeah and and there was Tarvitz and Lucius and from the very beginning all it said was they were close friends but 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 Tarvitz always showed nothing but a sort of patricial um, disapproval 
of Lucius, and Lucius just fucking hated Lu- Tarvis, as far as I could tell. I don't know. That was exactly the 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 um, comparison that came to my mind, and I completely agree. I think like um, compared to what we've seen so far, this this was a convincing uh, depiction of two people that are very close and genuinely care about each other, but also have genuine resentment about different yep. things, and and and, and those two things being mixed in rather than yeah Tarvitz and Lucius is the obvious one like Lucius is pretty much just 100% a dick like the whole time yeah, yeah. like from the beginning and uh, Nemio is like he's the equivalent Lucius character that's clear enough but it's just done so much better um here but I I would also say like he's not he's not a demon like I like Nemio I like Zahario yeah. um and yeah so Nemio is the sort of the one who has the growing resentment but towards the end of the book it's clear Zahariel has some sort of mirror resentment as well growing in him and at different points throughout the the book I was like yeah Nemiel totally has a reason to be resentful Zahariel's being a a dick here Um, or I realise that Zahariel there's a a bit where um, Zahariel is telling a story that involved Nemiel and Nemiel was heroic in it as well. That they were both like good heroic uh, aspirants to this um, to this order, but the people wanted a story of heroism and you know individual brilliance, and they got Zahariel to tell it. And obviously Nemiel was like growing a bit resentful because he was like, "Yeah, you you did strike the final blow, but you're only alive because I saved you earlier on." And I don't seem to be getting my own fair share here. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, it's not it's not unreasonable for him to think that. It's not it's not his avarice for recognition. He doesn't need to be loved. He's just like, yo, you weren't on your own. Yeah. And and it's just like it it, it isn't that, oh, at this point, Namiel decides, yo, fuck this cousin of mine. He's just, it's just a little bit of resentment, which he is like, oh, well, I'll deal with that. Yeah, it's just, it's more, it's not just completely one dimensional, basically. Yeah, Um, yeah, exactly. um, And so these two are at the centre of what I uh, thought was a bit like a Warhammer Harry Potter type setting, where where they're kind of in a school for nights and they're like, those two are competing against each other, they've got their teachers, they... Um, they uh, have a couple of friends who are sort of subsidiary characters, and this is where it does it does sort of default to a classic uh, trope of these books a little bit, where there's like where he's like one of them's like the book nerd, you know, like um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. always he's always getting slagged because he just scribbles down everything that the teachers say, and they're like, ah, you, I can't remember what his name is even, but um, he's Atia. Yeah, but um, Zahario, he's a bit younger and Zahario's kind of taken him under his wing a little bit and, and looks after him. And the other guy is like, he's like the, I don't know, like big, he's... Big dumb jock meathead. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so we've got the two characters we talked about are the sort of protagonist types in the middle and then you've got these two slightly OS um, drawn out characters and... Uh, I think we should mention also the 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 rights that they go through in order to be 
accepted into joining oh, the yeah, knights. Oh yeah, the, ter- the terrible um, um, pedagogical practices of of the the knight- <laughs> knightly order. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, if if you think, um, oh, the the fact that they're egalitarian stops them from being like these stupid teaching practices, but you know that w- warrior societies did have stupid teaching pr- practices and. Uh, the gimmick of these proto dark angels is pretty much like um, knightly orders of late medieval northern Europe. They get these boys. They're about at this point they're like eight or nine years old. They're young children, and they make them wait outside in the well, snow. They, they actually come. Well, it says describes them as coming themselves of their own volition. Oh yeah, yeah. They, they yeah. They're not forced. Um, but it seems that being a knight is the only sort of aspirational thing in life um, for people on this tough planet of Caliban. Um, but they make them stand in the snow with no boots and no coat all night. And they're not allowed to sit down. They're not allowed to turn around. They're not allowed to talk. They just have to be outside. And um, people, most of them don't make it. Some die. Um, and we should also say that Caliban is a planet of sort of mostly forests, dark forests, and beasts live within those forests and prey on the people. So it's uh, a very dangerous planet. And Zahariel starts hearing voices, and I'm I take it these are real chaos voices, or but that's never made clear. But in a good way, you know, it's never just laid out that this could just be the the fear of a young child. Are you talking about later on when he goes on his quest, or no, no, at the at the the time of his um, uh, of of his initial trial, uh, he starts hearing voices from the forest. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a real sense of. I thought this book did a very good job of like having this real sense of the the forest representing a kind of darkness of the soul and you yeah. know it just standing in for that and and that, because at one point he has a dream around about this point doesn't he where he's mm-hmm. um about the forest and, and things going on i can't remember the voices specifically but um i know that he does get this sense yeah, of and agency within the the dark forest yeah exactly and it, it's um like societies that you know are surrounded by the dark and dangerous and the unknown they will create myths and 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 stuff around that this is a it's a sort of well well-worn fairy tale trope and it works very very well but I, yeah again these noises and voices he hears it's we are sort of primed to think oh a voice from a forest or a voice from thin air it's chaos but it could just be you know a child who's terrified it's much more subtly done and much more intriguing like the yeah you obviously have the sense oh there's something dodgy and potentially chaos going on here but it's not like it's not like any other books where it's like it just like you know it's like uh this is like the ancient earth demon satanus uh you know <laughs> yeah. stuff like that or yeah whatever or a- anytime there is a little bit of like subtlety or like a question left in your mind the next line is and that thing turned out to be real and manifested as a as a pair of like jaws closing on his head. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, so so as part of their like 
education or training or whatever as a knight to become knights they they do things like there's one point I, I i couldn't actually work out exactly when this had happened in the timeline but they they kind of have a like zahario gets led like blindfold or something um to a darkened room where he gets sort of questioned like it's like a sort of oral examination about the values of knighthood and stuff like that by some of the highest people within the order and they like take on different roles like one of them is meant to be like nasty to and the others are more sympathetic and stuff um yeah th this happens about this time in the chronology of the book but that's um sort of skipped ahead in the timeline for when he is becoming an actual knight right uh, at the age of about 15. Ah, right, okay, yeah. Uh, Another thing is, like, the the knights on this planet go out for hunts uh, against the wild beasts in the forest, which we should probably get onto now, I guess. Like, so the the whole structure of the society, as I've said, is the order... The, or, the order of knights, obviously, is where most of the story takes place, but they are one of a number of knightly orders around the, the planet. And um, for most of the time, they've just kind of gone on... Uh, as protectors of society in different parts of the planet and they've defended people from these monsters basically that live very dangerous monsters that live in the dark forests and um so another one of these orders that i quite quite like the name of that was mentioned at one point was the the blood knights of the embriago vaults who oh god really <laughs> and they were they held debauched blood feasts um <laughs> shit i don't remember that at all i love these guys who are they what do they do um, yeah they're briefly mentioned let me see i can actually turn the page the um oh, uh, debauched blood feasts yeah, debauched blood feasts man um yeah, yeah. that's awesome uh where is it oh yeah i think this is what they're describing so that brother how did you how do you pronounce it again amadis 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 yeah um I think it's recounting some of his heroic deeds, saying he'd personally slain the great beast of Colchos and had led the knights in battle against the predations of the blood knights of the Andriago vaults. <laughs> and then at some point it's mentioned that they have debauched blood feasts. Oh yeah. <coughs> yeah so they're talking about telling a tale. Weaving the grisly tapestry of the horrors and debauched blood feasts of the knights. Yeah, so there you go. That's, I think that's all we'll learn about them, but... Uh, um, nice little bit of colour. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so anyway, they, there's these different nightly orders, but in the last decade or so, Lionel Johnson has been kind of with seemingly having formed an alliance with most of the other nightly orders, has gone on a massive project to try and destroy all of these, kill all of the 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 great beasts in the forest. Um, yeah, it, it's the great. He calls it a crusade, but it's it's the emperor's cru crusade in microcosm, basically. Yeah, yeah, and the, um, so that's sort of that's nearing its completion when most of the story is taking place. Like we're told that most of them have been killed, and they anticipate that it will not be much longer before they are all killed. And in that context, like one of the crucial turning points for the, the main characters is when uh, they're led out on a hunt by Brother Amadis um, and they get attacked by a beast and quite a few of them get killed and this is the story you were talking about earlier where Zahario kind of um, he sort of stands up to this 
and uh, eventually Brother Amadis um, comes and kills the beast, but Zahariel gets praised for his heroism. Yeah, and uh, it it is real heroism, but also Namiel, uh, the beast was going to kill Zahariel, and Namiel, um, through his own bravery, sort of took the attention of the beast off of Zahariel for long enough for him to get away. And so it sh- it should have been both being recognized and we've we've read enough about how the desire for fame like lucius always wanted um recognition for his own greatness and uh, that was the way in for chaos for him but namiel the way the story is written and it's really well done is he's he's not like that at all He's just like, you have to tell the truth in this story. You're not alone. Um, and but Zahariel doesn't really, he doesn't really spin a story. Just kind of, that's how it grows. That's how the- yeah, and, and, and the, the, the point where um, the, the, the resentment, the small amount of resentment that he has comes up, uh, Zahariel is like in the, the, the Great Hall, and he's like telling a story, you know, it's a, you're not going to say, oh, I was really shitting it here. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And and the, the author explicitly mentions Zahariel was like a bit uncomfortable doing it because, but this was just storytelling. This is what happens. And Namiel almost understands that, but still he's just like, yo, I was there too. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's genuinely like really subtle storytelling. Yeah, I just I hope it continues and it isn't just um, in the second half of the book. There isn't just a, a tap that's or, a, you know, a switch that's thrown and all of a sudden uh, a monster is born. Just in terms of the storyline, uh, there's a kind of one of the areas where they haven't been able to um, get in to fight the beasts properly is the uh, uh, an area called the North Wilds, which is particularly... I think pretty thick area of dark area of forest, and um, there's a, a group up there called the Knights of Lupus, who haven't been keen to allow the, the the crusade to kill the beasts. In I think these two things sort of happen a bit at the same time. There there's some discussion of that, and then they learn that there's a a great beast has been killing lots of people near a, a, a settlement. Yeah, it's sort of like the rest of the beasts have been destroyed um, and there's just this area of the North Wilds. Although how, um, a small pernickety point, I don't know how they do this on a planet-sized scale when they only have horses to get around. Like, how do you know that you've done the yeah, rest of the planet? That's a good, that's a good question. They have the, the, arch, the Archmaster, something like that, of the, the Knights of Lupus come. He's called... Sar- Sartana. They usually have like dramatis personae. Oh yeah, here, here we go. Um, yeah, Lord Sartana. Sartana. He, uh, he comes and they are one of the. They're the knights who are protecting that area of Caliban, but their their numbers have dwindled because they were the only group that weren't on board for the um, this crusade, and. So nobody really wanted to join them because they wanted to be with Lionel Johnson. Um, and also some of their knights actually defected to join this crusade. 
Um, so there's very few of them. Um, and Sartana comes and we find out that at some point in the past, a compromise was reached between the Knights of Lupus and the Order uh, that said, uh, well, we don't know the details because it was only struck between the Lion and Sartana. But uh, Sartana says that the the that compact had been broken by the Lion. Um, and he comes and sort of shouts at him and says, you told us that we were we wouldn't be part of it, that you would leave the North Wilds and you would leave us to our own. And now you're here ready to start a war. And what's really great is that everyone seems to sort of take that on as a possibility. Nobody's like, no, the lion is such a hero. He would never lie. He would never deceive. Everyone's like, yeah, that, that might've happened. Um, but fuck it. We're doing this. Um, it seemed like a, a, people had a, a slightly more realistic view of warfare and of treaties at the time. And yeah, because Zahario actually talks about that with his friends over dinner at one point, I think, saying that, yeah, he doesn't necessarily think the war with the Knights of Lupus is legitimate or, or based on, you know, um, good uh, justifications. Yeah. And you can, you, you could, you can imagine it. In one of the other books, everybody else would be like aghast and they would say, no, no, uh, we must believe fully in our Primarch. Yeah. But Nemiel just goes, yeah, it's totally possible that he, that he fucked the Knights of Lupus. Totally. But, you know, we're here now. But before that war really becomes a big part of the narrative, Amadis goes on a beast quest. Yeah, it, it was at this point that, like... um uh, the lion says, and we've, we're like, while Sartana is there, is that we, we've just been getting representations of a beast that's killed 200 people in the North Wilds, and you haven't done shit about it. And Amadis says, oh shit, that's where I'm from. That's my town. I'll, uh, I propose a quest. Yeah. Um, and then <laughs> does it solo. <laughs> but this is, this is like, obviously like, this is a kind of part of the kind of fairy tale element of this story. Well, kind of, you know, chivalric sort of romance sort of thing where a knight pledges to do this quest and then they have to go off on their own and do it and then um, he does this and eventually comes back basically dying and hasn't killed the beast yeah and it's like it, it's uh, hundreds of days i think so he's been away for quite a while and yeah i, I just thought i'd bring up the point that up until this point, the lion has all been like, this This great crusade is to defend our people. We must always defend the people against the predations of these beasts. And then he hears about this beast who's killed 200 people. And Amadis says, I'm going to go and kill it. The lion doesn't go with him. The lion says, yeah, you're good. I'm going to stay here and make war on these like group of old knights. I think it kind of shows through the slight amount of bullshit that the lion has been you know giving his followers yeah i mean the lion's moved beyond that i think you like you could be right about that but is there not also something like there's the clearing a beast quest is some sort of formal thing that a knight once they've done it has to do it on their own basically i don't know i'm just like 
well that that's that is to become a knight if that is you have to do that but yeah well i mean if if all of the beasts have to be killed by a solo knight that's just dumb. but i wonder if <laughs> well you know i wonder if there's a difference the between like why how they're killing most of them as a sort of crusade or or this and this individual yeah. beast quest is some traditional thing i don't know um yeah that's that is very possible um so anyway he he goes off and he doesn't complete his beast quest comes back dying he was like zahario's hero zahario um well a lot of them rush out because he sort of comes back on his horse and falls off his horse i think and like dies basically yeah, back at the, it's a very sheen moment back, back at their fortress and then um, zahario sort of is there when he's dying and 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 amada sees him and says take my pistol um and uh immediately when it like when he dies uh is lord cypher there i think lord cypher is there and he's like yeah he's like, don't do it i know what you're gonna do it's really good <laughs> yeah it's really good he's like he looks at him and he just goes oh 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 i see what no don't say it don't say it. it's a really good bit and then so harry was like i'm gonna i pledge to take a beast quest to avenge brother amadis and kill the 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 lion the collabonite lion monster that he's been trying to kill um so then everyone's like oh shit he said it now <laughs> he said it now and they're all all the other ones nemiel and Eliath and the other one the bookish one um they're all like yo you've killed yourself <laughs> this is <laughs> this is suicide and they have this like suicide meal for him yeah and Namiel is is just like giving him bo- both barrels and is like, you're just such a big headed idiot. You've just gone and get, got yourself killed all for glory. And, and, and Zah- yeah, sorry, carry on. No, I, I was just going to say that um, it's really good. He's clearly angry, but he's clearly really distraught because he thinks his cousin is going to die. And again, Zahariel gives like a good response where it's like he's it's not like he's crazy for you know he's not this big high-minded um you know desirous of all the fame and at the end they both sort of agree well there's no point in arguing you know this is our last day together let's just have a good time yeah it's really good you know like i agree like it comes across like he's actually saying these things because he cares about yeah. him. obviously it's probably mingled in with like a bit of jealousy that you know he's not doing something like this um although he apparently he shortly after this we find out later he also asked for his own beast quest and did that himself um but um it's much better than yeah like you imagine if this was lucius he'd just be like fuck you i wanted to go and kill the monster and you know wouldn't actually care about Tarvitz dying per se you know what i mean yeah like, yeah exactly um, but uh yeah so so he got and i i really enjoyed this bit where he went off in the quest because he's me too he's um so he so the story just sort of takes you immediately there without messing about he's getting guided by a sort of woodman woodsman of of the local community where the monster has been about you hear that like, he's a local peasant <laughs> just your standard local peasant but, <laughs> he's a bumpkin <laughs> um and he uh but the, he tells him about um they obviously appreciate that he's come but they think he's just gonna die for sure and yeah he tells him about you know the people in the town have been starving 
uh, and some of them went out to try and gather food from the forest and got killed by the monster and 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 Zahario sort of begins to well here he takes on more of a sense that he's his his quest takes on an added importance because it's not just about avenging his brother and sort of um, becoming a, a, a you know a tried and tested knight it's actually he realizes like what's at stake in terms of this uh this community and if he doesn't kill the beasts you know there a lot of them are going to die yeah and like the 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 local bumpkin was sort of saying like and and with every person that is killed there are orphans that are made and we can't like we don't have food enough for our own we can't take these orphans in so what happens to them and in every other book the uh the response to that would have been oh shut up idiot uh whereas this it's like oh this is this there is an actual purpose to what we're doing beyond heroism um this just does sound like a an act of defense rather than an act of like incursion of it feels more real in that way because like the, the space marines are usually they're they're like they frame what they do is just in terms of this almost completely isolated need to go and fight and get glory and it's so almost it's, it feels so detached from yeah any sent like anyone they're actually serving by doing that or anything and um, whereas you know maybe which is maybe part of the point of of you know like the story of the heresy and all that but um well there, there, there was um in the last couple of books with the um the emperor's children you brought up that it's a shit gimmick to have perfection you know to 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 have as your gimmick the search for perfection and it is not just for them to have it but also as a uh, a skeleton to hang a story yeah. on it just doesn't work um these knights just have a far better view of it they the word they use is excellence they strive for excellence and though they know they'll never achieve their their end goal of of being like totally excellent they know that's impossible but that the goal there is not the important thing but the strive to reach it and having that goal would just serves as an impetus to make you go further rather than some end point that you'll never reach yeah and it's just like a far better nuanced more natural way of looking at things that's true it is a, sort of essentially a similar thing but just done much better um so back oh yeah sorry yeah back to the sorry uh the the local bumpkin mentions the watchers from the dark as a, a local folklore um yeah. and we 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 find these almost immediately so yeah so the the, the woodsman sort of says he's not going any further tells zahario where to go zahario progresses deeper into this these dark forests and this is it has a real like i said before a fairy tale quality to it and and he feels his um bravado if you like sort of dissipating as he gets deeper into the forest and then i thought this was really well done we I talked about before about this forest is sort of this um represents you know there's this kind of darkness of the soul or something and, and there's um as he goes deeper into the forest you, you get he starts to kind of confront his own insignificance you know and it's like he's looking at the sort of abyss of um deeper greater powers um 
and and which is you know which is a little bit getting into the the sort of Lovecraftian thing that is what the the chaos gods basically are you know this like horror mm-hmm. this cosmic horror you know about that you know maybe there are these powerful beings out there who are you know make everything we do seem completely insignificant um and i thought that was quite well done here yeah and then he then like you say he he eventually not eventually pretty quickly encounters these watchers in the dark and they 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 say to him that he has the taint in him that's all that they say at this point like no he has the taint in him we must kill him now and you're like oh the taint we know what that means we we're in book six or whatever this is i know what the taint means um but they talk to him and they they can sort of read the truth in his words they say that they're a member of a cabal dedicated to fighting the greatest evil and again we're like oh yeah i got that i know what that is and zahariel ends up swearing an oath to um defeat this evil too and they read the truth in what he says and he's just allowed to leave i assume they'll come up again <laughs> but uh, but uh, there is this sort of magical quality to them that i like yeah um and but before he leaves he like asks them about like what did you mean by the taint and they say uh, i wrote this down um look not to unlock the door that leads to easy power zahariel of the order Ride back to the lightning tree and you will find what you seek. The lightning tree is just a, a, a tree that's been struck by lightning. That's where the the beast will be. So yeah, don't don't take the easy way out, basically, which seems to be the way to chaos for everyone. Um, people looking for great, uh, an easy way to greatness. Yeah. There's another really good line about chaos here. I thought it was, I think one of the watchers says, so long as there are humans, it will exist. Um, talking about mm. chaos so it's, it's almost saying that chaos is almost a human condition here you know that there's just something like the fallen nature of of mankind that there's always this as long as there's people there will always be this potential fall into darkness and i thought that was a really interesting thing where chaos wasn't just literally monsters in the in space <laughs> but it was actually almost a sort of projection of uh, i'm sure it'll be back to being monsters in space very soon oh yeah no doubt <laughs> but, but here it was almost like this suggestion that um, it, was, it was a more literary kind of um reading of chaos yeah it's a, it's it's like a, a creation of humanity but also a destroyer of humanity as well yeah. it's a, a weird it's a weird thing and uh yeah something that um i hope will be carried on these these watchers it kind of i'm sure there's it kind of says they're aliens does it i mean or they're like yeah well the the this is something that i remember from a few later books um because as i was reading this i i think this is maybe the first one i didn't read um because i don't remember this at all which is a shame because it's so good uh but from some of the later things that i've read the cabal is a cross species um group that fights kind of everyone it well it, it fights chaos but that often puts it against the empire or the eldar or whoever but also on their sides as well right. so they're completely autonomous okay interesting um but more than that i really don't know right. so he returns to the whitening tree and he does 
encounter the beast. So basically, the Zahario makes a pretty good go of it, but gets to the point where he is the beast is basically got his jaws around him, and he's about to be snapped in half, essentially. Um, and then I can't remember what it is exactly that triggers this, but no, just out of nowhere, he suddenly like he sees everything in a sort of translucent he goes into this sort of slow motion it's like he enters the matrix sort of thing and he goes into this <laughs> slow motion state where he can see through himself and through the beast and see all its internal organs and uh, and he can just then he then just sort of puts his hand into the center of the beast to it to its heart and fires his gun at its heart. Is that right? <laughs> Essentially? Yes, it blows him up from the inside. <laughs> and then, then it sort of all snaps back to normal reality and his hand's like in the beast. Having, uh, <laughs> having, yeah. having like and, shot it. And like, I have to say, he takes this in his stride really well, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, all of a sudden, he's just like, yo, I've got x-ray eyes <laughs> and I can... And I can, whoa, I can touch this beast's heart. I'm just going to fucking shoot it up. <laughs> and he does that. And the beast dies. And he cuts off his head and drags it back with him. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> like, nary again a mention for these new x-ray powers that he has. I'm sure that that will be something in the, the second half of the book, which I haven't read. But he, he, he copes very well with this unusual new power because if that happened to me that would form quite a central part of my thinking for the next few days <laughs> well the thing is when you think about it he's got a lot to deal with i mean the situation he's just been in is hardly normal in its own right so you know like he's just gone off to fight this giant lion beast and then that shit happens but it's all of it's quite extraordinary really um but like just a few years earlier he fought like a giant flying lizard beast <laughs> yeah but this one's real nasty compared even compared to that i think this one's like killed with this big hero he doesn't have his friends with him he's just talked to these watchers in the dark i think you're underplaying <laughs> the 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 importance like that suddenly having x-ray vision would would play in somebody's life <laughs> but i think he um it does talk about how he when he so he goes back to the fortress where the order stay and um, he's obviously lauded as a hero and now he kind of is brought in to be a full-on knight but it does talk about at one point like some situation where he's like he thinks he might have to explain how it, people might ask how he killed the thing um, and then as if to say like how's he going to get around the fact that he got x-ray powers um, and, and, I, and I think that is a slight underreaction <laughs> that's what I'm saying I think he's the the reaction shouldn't be, oh, better better not tell anyone about this. <laughs> the the reaction should be, what the fuck <laughs> is going on? Um, How'd I do that again? I also think like surely the one of the first things that would have been compared to the previous situation where he was asked to constantly tell a story. You'd think one of the first things they would want to know is like the full details of how he killed this beast. Uh, you know, as soon as he got back. But anyway, as he gets back, he becomes a knight. We find out Nemio has in the intervening time he went on his own beast quest so he's a he's a full knight now as well 
and uh, yeah, so essentially the major next bit of the story is the war with the Knights of Lupus is coming to its conclusion and they're besieging their fortress. Unless there's anything else you wanted to... No, no, that uh, that seems... Address. Yeah, that's happening. Obviously there's a lot of battle scenes in these books that are quite good in their own right, quite exciting, but I thought this one was actually... Usually the battle scenes are very deliberately a kind of warfare that is very fantastical with all these superhuman warriors and aliens or monsters or whatever in a huge huge conflict and this one felt like a more kind of grounded description of yeah it it felt very small um and it's it's siege warfare uh but i agree it was very um it's, it's so much on a smaller scale and like you got a sense of Nemi, you know it was a Hario, um obviously he's an exceptional of the students of the order, he's he's obviously exceptional, but it still does a good job, I think, of describing how he has to control his fear going at the situation and and just the senses and. Um, yeah, the, there's a bit while they're climbing through a, a breach in the wall that they make. There's bullets whizzing past his head, and he, he says like, um, during training, you're taught to listen for the sound that the bullets make as they whiz past you. And that tells you how far away the person is who's shooting them. But he said that through the fear and the heat of battle, he forgot all those lessons. I was just like, that's cool. That is such a... Because when, when it's space marines, they feel no fear. And they're always the most perfectly capable soldier that's possible. They, they, they never like feel, they never forget anything. And you're just like, well, who fucking cares then? This is this is going to end how I know it's going to end. Um, this felt so much more dangerous and better for it. Yeah, I, like thinking about it actually, this most of the descriptions of battles in this um, these books are generally from a kind of bird's eye perspective, if you like. You get the sense of this whole battle playing out um, and, and often it does jump between lots of different perspectives. I felt this was a much more effective description from a sort of... Um, you know, an actual subjective, uh, it's not written in the first person, but like a first person, you know, um, perspective on this battle from Zahario actually um, taking part in a siege as a, you know, a, a new knight, really, who hasn't experienced a battle like this before. And I thought it was much, in in that sense, it was, it was quite well done. Um, but, uh, yeah, so... Don't worry, though, because we've got monsters being released from Cade. More monsters coming. <laughs> we uh, so they they besiege this from various sides. The lion has come up with a cunning plan to trick them into not knowing what is the, sort of this the main attack. They get in fairly easily because it's a terrible plan. <laughs> the uh, the knights of Lupus don't have, like you said before, a lot of people defected from them. It's mainly they're mainly older knights. There's not that many of them. So it's because it, it's a siege situation, it's socially difficult to get through. But once they get in, they make quite pretty quick progress, and they get to the the central keep behind the the outer walls, and um, they are they sort of break into there, come into some main kind of courtyard area, and there, and what do they see? Some some monsters <laughs> in cages, cage monsters, loads of them. So there's a heap of cages, and uh, there's about a hundred of the remaining 
Knights of Lupus are there and they've got all these uh, beasts in cages and they basically, one of them pulls some weaver, releases all the beasts and it just is a scene of carnage. <laughs> but there's far more of the of the order than monsters and the guys just team up. There was a bear monster, they cut off its leg and stab it up. And uh, sort of a, a big victory looks like it's about to happen. And then this ultra monster appears. Now what, I, I saw this as like a really big alligator or crocodile. That's kind of what I, I w- picture it as. Yeah. Is that, does that fit with what you have I in your head? I was sort of just you? very vaguely like T-Rex. You know, I was sort of, oh, really? I was sort of thinking that, yeah. Um, and it's it just starts like it's got a tail with like big thorns and spikes on it and it just starts just battering the shit out of everyone um, at which point Luther and the lion both arrive um, as I say it was a shit plan because the plan involved um, all the the best fighters sort of drawing the attention of the the Knights of Lupus away from the main attack, which was going to be led by the children. (laughs) (laughs) 14-year-olds. And I was like, huh? What? Um, But yeah, that that was it. But I suppose it worked. Um, They they were just like two of them in a group of other knights, and Luther was there. He was in the main attack, was he not? Yeah, but he arrived later, I suppose. Um. But yeah, yeah. The best, the best plan is always to take the, your strongest godlike weapon and not use it. <laughs> but anyway, anyway. So th- this beast's killing everyone. Then Luther comes in, stabs it through the mouth with a big spear. Um, and the lion, never to be outdone, jumps on its back and starts stabbing it in the brain. <laughs> um, quite a good battle, this. And it dies. It it dies. This is the point that Will mentioned earlier that kind of sucked, where um, Luther wanted to kill all to himself and looked really sort of, you know, fucked off that he didn't get all the glory. Yeah, which just like we said doesn't didn't really flow naturally from what we'd heard about Luther before. Yeah. Um. So then they they're like, oh, how dare these? You know, before there was a sort of mutual respect with the knights of lupus i guess and now they're like these they've been harboring beasts you know we must kill them all and they um they break into the well they get into the keep and they basically want to like find where they are uh, inside there and they kind of all split up and go in different directions and nemio and zahario uh, eventually find this pretty awesome sounding archive library. yeah library fuck yeah and like we love a library <laughs> and again so I, I meant to say this before but the the, the knights of lupus were sort of, i'm sure one of the criticisms of wet them was oh, yeah they've just become obsessed with their books and <laughs> oh, the learning <laughs> what learn what what good is learning when you've got a bear monster on you that's what i say <laughs> uh yeah i feel like like actually mentioning bear monsters We've not maybe talked about the beasts all that much, but there's a strong indication that the beasts are a chaos, are caused by a chaos 
power of some sort. That that is true. Yeah, the the watchers in the dark said that the beasts were bad. Like, um, they were, but they were a symptom of a greater evil. Yeah, and that's so that's when that's the clearest indication. But even before that, like the fact that the, the these beasts basically know essentially maybe some are a bit alike, but they're. It, it, says most of them are entirely different from each other so they're not like that's right yeah and they they were a species of one they were all individual individuals but there was also a really great line somewhere along the way that said not only were they uh just like evil beings that wanted to kill you they were also mad because they were alone um and it was like i was like whoa that's fucking that's really something and uh, and and yeah in terms of them having like not just being you know, animals. That it does talk about that at least one occasion um, when Zahariel's fighting one early on in the story. That he has the sense from it that it, you know, it isn't just an animal following its instincts. Yeah. It has some sort of. Um, it enjoys killing or something. I, I can't. I can't remember how it was put exactly, but there's a sense of a sort of a monstrous desire to kill. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, and so anyway, that's that's the the beast. Um, but so going back to the the keep, they they find this library, and that's where uh, the guy, his name I've forgotten, the leader of the Knights of Lupus, is Sartana. Sartana. He's there on his own. And this this is a scene that has happened a few times in other books, but again, it's just done so much better. Um, Sarta- Sartana. First off, he says that he just he just wanted to be left alone, but that the knights uh, the the order couldn't allow that to happen. But he he's sort of the voice of conservatism here. He he's saying um, that we need to keep the knights. What happens? And we need to keep the beasts. That the fact that the beasts were in cages were because they want to preserve them, because if the lion succeeds in exterminating them, then what are knights? Well, what are the point of the order? And what's the point in tradition at that point? Because you're, you're like, you're changing the tradition of this planet. The knights exist to protect the people of, uh, of Caliban. And when uh, they do this by killing beasts, that is how, that's what a knight is for. Um, so what is a night for when there are no beasts to kill? And that is the the sort of the the main thrust of why they couldn't go with um, the lion during the crusade. Yeah, and then after that conversation, he stabs himself. Stabs himself. But I wanted to. I thought it was a is really interestingly done because that that conversation um, has happened a few times through the books, and normally. You the you kind of go with the 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 doomed individual. You normally think, yeah, you know, this culture should have been left alone. Why did the the um, empire need to like stamp down on them? But with this one, you're just thinking like he's just too conservative. Um, you're just left thinking, what are knights for? Well, they're meant to they're meant to protect the people. They're not meant to just like wait around and kill a beast every now and again. Because if if your job is to protect the people, you're doing a shit job of it. 
this is actually better, although it's like causing the extinction of these beasts, it does have the effect of protecting people better than what you're doing. You you just want to preserve shit because preserving shit is important. Yeah, it's like you can see, obviously, in an abstracted way, you can see his point, but um, it's a bit of a... Uh, it's a word it's just a bit of a obtuse way to think about things you know it's a real conflict you know basically it, when it's been done in the past you're just like the you've been on the side of the 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 person who's being stamped out and who's being sort of moved past but this time you're like no you the times ha- should move beyond you because you're you're sort of an impediment that, that, um, that being said, I did quite like Sartana as a character, like the way that when he had the meeting with Wyatt the Lion, he was basically right, well, fuck you, come and destroy us then. And um, it's pretty unapologetic. <laughs> but th- th- that was also a really good scene yeah. because the the lion um, had brought together all the knights and all the aspirants as a sort of uh, show of strength uh, because they knew the lights of Lupus had like really old men in it and didn't have any aspirants um and th- that just seemed exactly like horus in his you know uh, whatever his the bridge of his ship was called um just you know like bullying uh weaker people into doing what he wants but sardanus totally saw through it and just went oh so is this is this how you do business is this how you conduct treaties and negotiations you you bring me in here to humiliate me yeah and i was just like yeah that's fucking cool like he sees through your your stupid primark bullshit yeah but yeah uh, i agree it, it did bring to mind like those kind of tricks that horus used to do in the councils and stuff but i thought again it was just much better done here it was much more like horus's things were usually well i'll get you to say this and then i'll argue against it and it was like it just didn't sound like all that sophisticated and smart, really. <laughs> or, yeah. Or is this... No, exactly, exactly, and, and it it isn't. Yeah. And Sardana just sees through it and just goes, "Is this it? Is, really? But this, but you, this is but it. You can see why it's. it's I, I thought even the plan in itself was a much more real, much more sort of. It's it's blunt and obvious, but it's a much more powerful message just by simply having them there. Um, yeah. And they're saying, "Look, we have a next generation of knights coming through. You don't." And it was a much more powerful point than Horus's things were just like, right, you say this then, and then I'll say this, and that, you know what I mean? With this, like, yeah, and like, it was just with all, with all of these credulous fools just falling directly into the, you know, the trap. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, totally. But, um, so the, this part of the book basically ends with the the Sartana stabs himself, and that's more or less the last thing I can remember. Anyway. Yeah, um, and yeah, so that's where the first half of the book took us up to. I think we've described most of the significant stuff in it, but I, I still just I don't know if we've done justice to how much better this book is than all the other ones. Do you think? Do you agree with uh, that? I, I I think I I don't know. Like I, the, I'm just looking at how long we've been recording. I think we've been sort of talking about it for longer than the other ones because there's just we're we're just so much more keen on it's set on a planet nobody goes into space it's um it's so much more grounded it's so much smaller in scale but better for it the monsters actually seem of a place they seem like they fit within the world of caliban as it's described 
um, the knights, re- it, it, the the whole culture of Caliban seems pretty coherent, which I really like, um, and the interactions between all the characters seem totally believable too. So I'm totally high on it. I'm just wor- I, I worry because at some point the emperor will arrive and space marines will be created, and I'm sure will be taken forward in time to the heresy and maybe that will be good maybe this author will be able to bring along the quality of stuff that he's done already and bring that into the modern day or the you know the current dates of the heresy um but i worry about that because i think what makes it strong so far is its lack of space opera nonsense i think yeah i think part of the success of this story i think it's it's just written better on one level but um the the author well i don't know how much obviously he was told what he had to write about here but the story let's say had a had a space had space to grow you know space to occupy on its own totally. um without like fulgrim was the last book was the it was just really badly caught between this kind of story and tying in with all the stuff that had already happened you know what i mean it was just it was between those two yeah. things in a really way that kind of broke it i think um and uh, maybe the author was just given so much more leeway because he was like right we, we've we've tied off a whole bunch of storylines in the previous one you can we haven't even mentioned the dark angels so you can do what you want yeah like within you've got and, these points uh, to hit it, but off you go you know create this world you know yeah maybe maybe um but it was it was fucking good it, and, and all the better for being after fulgrim which was a, a real struggle cool uh we'll leave it there then or any final points neil uh just to say that uh if everyone is enjoying these podcasts spread the word tell friends um write reviews do whatever it is people do and uh we'll be able to do more of them um it's been really good fun so uh thank you all for listening and you can contact us at horseheretics at gmail.com great uh so we'll see you next time see you then